We are back. Uh, we often do obituaries at the top of our third segment. That's just where we place them. And I did note one obituary I thought I would comment on. The passing of Sir John Compton. He was the three-time Prime Minister of the tiny Republic of St. Lucia in the Caribbean. John Compton was a farmer and an attorney. He became Chief Minister of the then Colony in 1964, negotiated for more autonomy from Britain three years later, and became the first Prime Minister upon independence in 1979. And the only reason I thought this was worthy of mention was the fact that I did travel to St. Lucia back in 2003. It's a beautiful little Caribbean island noted for a couple of spectacular mountain peaks which uh, grace one of the harbors. Uh, in driving around my beat-up rental car, I came upon this giant Chinese embassy and learned later that evidently the People's Republic of China has spent a lot of money trying to woo <laughs> the Republic of St. Lucia. I was somewhat amused to note that in his final political act in his five-decade career, John Compton made an enemy out of the world's most populous nation when his government restored ties with Taiwan. China regards Taiwan as a renegade province. It then broke off relations with St. Lucia and condemned the reversal as, quote, a brutal interference, unquote, in its internal affairs. Uh, just, you know, the idea that the recognition of Taiwan as a legitimate political entity by tiny St. Lucia was a brutal interference in Chinese internal affairs I'm sorry. You just have to shake your head and contemplate how much of politics is really no different than playing in the sandbox in kindergarten. Anyway, and speaking of uh, George Bush, we really are fascinated by this article that surfaced uh, a few weeks back that David Souter, Justice David Souter on the Supreme Court, contemplated resigning because he was so upset by the decision that sealed the 2000 presidential election for George W. Bush. Souter believed his five colleagues in the majority acted in a crudely partisan manner in siding with Bush to shut down the recount of votes in Florida in December 2000. That's according to author Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote in The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. Wrote Tubin, at the urging of a handful of close friends, he decided to stay on, but his attitude toward the court was never the same. There were times when David Souter thought of Bush v. Gore and wept. To that I would add... He's certainly not alone. And other items related to uh, hypocrisy, we have the following. The Reverend Ted Haggart asked his supporters for money to put him and his wife through graduate school for social work so they could become therapists. It looks as though it will take two years for us to have adequate earning power again, Haggard said. So we're looking for people who will help us monthly for two years. Last year, of course, Haggard resigned as head of the New Life Megachurch, after admitting he engaged in sexual immorality with a male prostitute. That year, by the way, he received a salary of $200,000, plus a severance package of $138,000, plus book royalties. Boy, how's the guy going to get by? <laughs> he seems so destitute. And in the field of medicine-slash-biology, we were rather shocked to note earlier this month that a pulmonary specialist at Denver's National Jewish Medical and Research Center has written to federal agencies to say doctors there believe they've found the first case of a consumer who developed lung disease from the fumes of microwave popcorn. Now this compound, diacetyl, is added to quite a few things. In fact, when we talked to Steve Etlinger a few months back, the author of Twinkie Deconstructed, he does in fact talk about this artificial butter flavoring, diacetyl. And yes, it's also in your Twinkies. 
The problem is when you are exposed to fumes from this, as some factory workers were, it, it does cause lung damage. And apparently if you eat enough buttered popcorn and get exposed to the steam coming off the package, you potentially are at risk as well. Let me quote from Steve Etlinger. A mere touch of it, it is detectable in concentrations as low as 50 parts per billion, gives Chardonnay wine its smoothness. Higher concentrations of diacetyl are what make butter smell like butter, but even higher concentrations are what make butter smell rancid. Ellinger noted diacetyl could be extracted from butter, but that is extremely difficult and expensive. It can be fermented from yeast, and sometimes is, but luckily, the exact same molecule is more inexpensively created from natural gas by a few obscure Chinese chemical companies and a well-known German multinational. It is, by the way, the active ingredient in the, quote, butter flavor, unquote, used on movie popcorn. But here's one of my favorite parts of the entire book. Uh, Steve Etlinger notes, on top of that, due to the strength of its apparently awful but non-toxic smell, diacetyl must be kept separate from other chemicals and treated carefully to guard against leaks. The containers are labeled harmful if swallowed, <laughs> both ironic and ominous for a food ingredient. And speaking of edibles, I got a laugh out of an article in Parade magazine uh, earlier this month by someone named Karen Halligan about the right food for your pet. Here was the alleged good sense advice uh, that readers were given. Consult your vet on what kind of food suits your pet. Always measure the amount of food you give. Establish meal times or twice daily feedings. Don't feed table scraps and limit food rewards. This correspondent uh, takes the position that all five of those bits of advice are always measure the amount of food you give. Gee, Fluffy got 3.6 ounces yesterday. I'd better make sure he doesn't get 3.7 today. Equally inane was the following. Never, never feed your pet in this box of 20 items. Never feed your pet avocado, bones, cheese, dough, Fat, grapes, ham, liver, milk, potato peels, tuna, or raisins. What is wrong with these people? Tuna? Never feed your pet tuna? Radio Parallax has a sneaking suspicion that this uh, article may have in some way been influenced by the pet food manufacturers of America. We don't have any hard evidence, that's just our suspicion. When you see that little common sense in a, in a popular article, you think, you know, something's up. Oh, and speak, speaking of something being up, regarding the popcorn chemical, article in the B by Shane Goldmacher a couple days back noted that state legislation to ban diacetyl uh, was headed for Governor Schwarzenegger's desk when all of a sudden it made an unexpected U-turn. Thanks to a deft parliamentary maneuver by a Republican senator, the left the majority Democrats outflanked and the legislation stalled until 2008. Funny how that sort of thing happens. The article did note that earlier this month, four of the nation's leading microwavable popcorn manufacturers announced they would rework the recipes for their butter-flavored popcorn to remove diacetyl. Those companies were Orville Redenbacher, Act 2, Pop Secret, Jolly Time, and Pop Weaver brands. Let's, uh, let's do some science here, specifically some space news related to objects in space. Uh, two items. First off, according to Nature magazine, the September 6th issue, William Botke and colleagues at Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, 
tracked the orbits of asteroids back in time and came to the conclusion that there must have been some collision that took place out in the asteroid belt about 160 million years ago. They figured this out by, I guess, looking at the spectra of these various rocks out there and finding that about 2,000 of these objects belong uh, to the same pattern as a relatively larger body called Baptistina, which is about 25 miles across. If these folks have done their math right, it looks that if you trace all of these objects back in time, uh, there may have been a collision about 160 million years ago that they speculate may have produced the asteroid that hit the Earth 100 million years later and killed off the dinosaurs. What amazes me is they've actually got little bits of debris from uh, that impact 65 million years ago, and they think it matches Baptistina, which evidently is a carbonaceous chondrite, a type of... Uh, of uh, rock out in space that kind of resembles a charcoal briquette more than a rock or, or, or piece of iron. This research team also claims that if you do the math on where these orbits go back in time, there's some missing, uh, missing orbits that uh, apparently Jupiter and Mars would have conspired to whip through the inner solar system. I don't know. This is an interesting story. We'll have to see what turns up uh, regarding corroborating evidence. Uh, there was speculation here that Tycho that large crater that uh, amateur astronomers are familiar with on the moon may have also been uh, one of these daughters of Baptistina. should mention oh, at that Science in a Sphere exhibit, uh, with, uh, which we just talked about in the last segment, they also projected other solar system bodies onto the sphere, at one point the moon, and it was very intriguing to see uh, the crater Tycho from a perspective where it just looked like a giant uh, you know, flower sack had gone splat and spread in every direction. Again, you, you amateur astronomers will know what I'm talking about. If you look at the moon, there are these, these rays projecting out from this crater that are really bright white and spread for just, you know, thousands of miles across the lunar surface. It made quite a big splat. If we ever get back to the moon, and we will someday, someone needs to go uh, over to, to that, uh, those rays of ejecta on the lunar surface and gather some of it up and see if they can, uh, you know, match the fingerprint to this asteroid. Be kind of cool science. Actually, according to the article in, uh, in The Economist magazine, the Apollo 17 astronauts brought back some material from the moon, which, uh, which was about the right age, about 100 million years ago, so it may have included some of this splat. I'd like to know more. And if you know more, again, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com, and we can all get educated. And speaking of rocks from space, we got a breaking story, literally breaking story this week from Peru that I don't know what to make up. I'm just going to just read from you from the copy from MSNBC. The headline is, Villagers Fall Ill After Fireball Hits Peru. A fireball fell from the sky and slammed into southern Peru over the weekend, creating a huge crater that emitted a sickeningly smelly gas, local authorities said. More than 600 villagers fell ill, the Peruvian radio network, RPP, reported. Video reports from the scene near the remote Andean village of Carancas, along Peru's border with Bolivia, showed what appeared to be a 100-foot-wide, 20-foot-deep impact crater with a bubbling pool of water at the bottom. Authorities said the crater was made Saturday by a falling meteorite. Agency France Press quoted a local official, Marco Lemache, as saying that boiling water started coming out of the crater and particles of rock and cinders were found nearby. Lemache told RPP that the gases emanating from the crater caused nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headaches, and stomach pain, so much so that authorities were considering calling a state of emergency. 
According to Jorge Lopez, health director in the Puno region of Peru, who told Reuters his team examined about 100 people who suffered vomiting and headaches. We ourselves went near the crater, and now we've got irritated throats and itching noses, said Lopez. We are really fascinated by this story, and this, boy, this may be enough excuse to go back down to Bolivia and Peru and check it out. Uh, yours truly has been in Puno, Peru. It was, to say the least, not the garden location of South America. And I guess if you had to pick a spot to put a sickening, smelling meteorite impact crater, that would probably be a reasonable locale. But at any rate, we will continue to follow this story. All right, in the minute we have left, we want to talk about a play in Sacramento. And to tell, here to tell us about that is one of the lead actors, local attorney and activist, Jeffrey Kravitz. Uh, welcome to Radio Parallax, Jeff. Howdy, Doug. How are you? Good, good. What's, uh, tell us about the play. And- okay, well, this is a play I think a lot of people have been waiting for. It's called The Trial of George Bush. And uh, in this play, you get transported to a courtroom where George Bush is on trial for his crimes against the United States and his crimes against humanity. Uh, Ironically enough, I actually play one of Bush's defense lawyers uh, for a very simple reason. The Bush family can pay the fee. (laughs) All right, I understand there's going to be audience participation in this event. Oh, yes. It's a very, very interesting play. The audience gets to be members of the jury. They get to be witnesses. Uh, Quite exciting uh, event. It's every weekend at the California stage, which is at 2509 R Street, in uh, Sacramento. The show is Fridays and Saturday nights at 8 o'clock and Sundays at 2 o'clock every weekend through uh, October 8th. All right. Well, so um, definitely come 2509 R Street and you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy yourself. All right. And, and when we have more time, come back in two weeks. We'll talk a little bit more about it. I'd love to. All right. Jeff Kravitz. Okay. The play is A Patriot Act, The Trial of George Bush. We'll have more to say about that. That about wraps it up for today's program. Our thanks go to our Washington, D.C. correspondent, Nick Gregory. We hope to hear more from Nick in the future, as well as our local environmental correspondent, Jennifer Davidson. Also, our thanks to former KDVSer Jeffrey Kravitz. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Mm-hmm.